Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti reflective, scratch resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in house with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com slash covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. Warbyparker.com slash covered. Thank you, nice fade. Okay, so the cat <laughs> peed on the bed. But I think, well, she didn't know. Well, to be fair, it wasn't your birthday when she did it. No, no. But she, you know, she's, uh, yeah, she is just known as Pissing Barbara. I tell you what, Babs, you're on thin ice, love. She's on such thin ice. And now when she creeps around the house, you know, I just see malice in her face instead of, uh, you know, the prettiness. So I don't know what to do, really. I think it was the fact, Jane, that... So she's just taken to peeing right in the middle of the bed. Last night it was in the middle of my pillows. Oh, dear. So she managed to just... I mean, it's quite clever in a way. She's got four pillows. She's a calculating little shit. Yep, two scatter cushions and a duvet. The scatter cushion on the bed. Yeah, I know. They're not really scatter cushions. They're great big cushions. But I have stopped short of doing the K, you know, the, the karate... What do you mean? Well, you know when you go to a hotel now, they have... You have to spend ten minutes taking the stuff off the bed. Well, the big cushions, they have a karate chop in the middle of them. What? So they all look... They all they all have a, a dent in the middle of them at exactly the same place. Oh, my God. OK, which is achieved by somebody... Karate. Thumping. Yeah. OK. Yeah. I don't really understand why I think cushions just look fine as they are. Oh, uh, I don't know that. I mean, I'm, I'm not really one for abundant paraphernalia on a bed. I just want to get in it. You say that, Jane. No, no, I've heard different. <laughs> no, uh, I don't understand the, the cushion. I mean, also, who wants a cushion in bed? Pillows, yes. Cushions, no. Well, no, see, these are great big cushions, so they're really, really handy for when you want to read a book in bed. So, you mm. know, I have one huge cushion behind my back and then I have one huge cushion under my knees. Oh, I see, for a proper And then you, can, then you can read for hours in that position. I don't, I don't like to read in bed too long because then you just feel... You won't get the benefit when you go back to it. I like to make the bed just for, you know, night times. Do you? Yes, <laughs> okay. I do. Anyway, happy yeah. birthday. Thank you. And I'm sorry that Barbara um, really oh, wasn't God. in the right mood. But no. Uh, no, no doubt, she's probably planning something lovely for tonight. Better not be a big shit. And I... <laughs> I'm sure it won't be that. I'm sure it'll be something much, 
much nicer. Um, okay, um, uh, please, Barbara, lay off. Um, yeah. I see. I um, we have a litter tray inside, and I actually I changed it this morning because I came down into the room where the litter tray is and just thought, oh my god, <laughs> what is that stench? It's not the poo; it's the wee, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it's absolutely astonishing. Well, it takes the hairs off the inside of your nose. Yeah, and it? I've got all the sprays, uh, and I have to. But you do have to. You have to change litter tray quite often as well. Not just the litter, but the tray itself can get extremely smelly on the base. Do you not do one of those, and then we'll stop, listeners? Don't worry. Yeah, there is more. There is less of this than. Do you not use? What am do I trying to do say? You do a liner, a lift out liner. Uh, no, I don't do a liner. Should I? Well, maybe the li- I might try with a liner. More plastic in my life, isn't it? Well, there is that. Yeah. Yes, this is a welcome to our current affairs, <laughs> our chart topping current affairs podcast on Fee's birthday. She's only fifty-five. Spring, fifty-five. Spring chicken. I went for a swim as well this morning, Jane. Can I yeah. just say uh, I was swimming up and down, and I thought how amazing actually to be fifty-five because a couple of friends haven't made it to fifty-five, which is just such a unbelievably sobering thought uh, and uh, I just thought this is a this is a lovely life and I, I'm in, I'm enjoying all of it well that's very good that is genuinely very and actually you're absolutely right to point to that because not everybody does no. and uh, the older you get the more grateful you should be very much so something I'll be reminding my parents of at the weekend <laughs> <laughs> how's that going oh god <laughs> Well, anyway, I mean, actually, they're in pretty good form at the moment. But you're absolutely right. We don't say often enough, how lucky am I? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I did think today, I just, thought, you know, um, all, all is good in the world. And some, because there are so, so many times when it's not. Uh, but when it is, it's it's just worth kind of inhaling it, isn't it? I think it's a, a topic we could throw out to the group. Is, is there a point at which uh, older people, I'm not going to say elderly, but older people... Stop being glad to be alive and just start complaining about how hard it is to be them. Because <laughs> I do, I do think there's a kind of turning point. Obviously, not everybody's the same. You you can't generalise, and I don't want to do that. But uh, and I've no idea how I'll be if I were to make it to I don't know my mid eighties. Would I find less to be grateful for and a whole lot more to complain about? It is possible, isn't it? Because I think your body starts to really—it's hard. You know, things things that you used to take for granted are just not that simple anymore. God, of course. And I suppose as as well, it is just that feeling of not having very much in front of you, realistically. Yeah. Because the ages that we're at at the moment, you know, God willing, and all of that. Uh, there is still a feeling that, you know, there's a road in front, isn't there? And mm-hmm. there might be some turnings. And we might go this and we might go that. that. Yeah. But actually, when you're 85, when you're 87, when you're 89, that's just not true. Is there long life in Barbara's family? Do you? <laughs> <laughs> don't. Don't. Do you know my, Probably. My <laughs> parents are still alive. They're 25. <laughs> my longest living cat was Bob, who lived to be 23. Oh, well, I think Barbara's got that. She's yeah. got that target and she's going to go for it. Don't let's let's make the rest of the podcast a Barbara free zone, please. Always, I'll be unhappy. Can we go back to dandruff? Yes, let's. Because there's never a bad time to. Oh, our big guest is a good one today. Who's that? Kathy Newman, out of Channel Four News. Well, out of Times Radio and Times well. Radio. Oh, sorry, yes, I should have mentioned. She's our fellow DJ here at Times Radio uh, with her super show on a Sunday afternoon into the evening. Friday. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Oh, no, I did know that, actually, because I've been on it. Oh, OK. Right. <laughs> OK. Uh, yes, Cathy's show is on Fridays. Yes, it is. Yeah. 
and uh, it's very good and it contains a little section called The Ladder uh, where she always talks to a woman just about how they have made it up the ladder and and that's the that's the bit that we've been on, haven't we? But we're not included in the book. No, no but, reference to us at all. <laughs> we won't mention we, that. we went both went to the index, obviously hopeful. Nothing there. Nothing there, Kathy. Anyway, uh something we'll put to you a little um no, we'll we'll be as we'll we won't mention it. Um right. <laughs> you probably will. Just a bit. Did you really look in the index? Of course I bloody did. Did you? Every book. Can't Any I... book about the media, I go, especially about women. I, I mean, genu- no. I genuinely, genuinely don't. Oh, I always do. Uh, <laughs> political dandruff, please keep me anonymous. Oh, so we will. Uh, your discussion about politicians and dandruff, <laughs> where else do you get this content? Reminded me of one of the tasks that wasn't on the job description when I was a civil servant working in a cabinet minister's private office. Either side of the 2001 election, I worked for two different ministers, both men in their 50s. I better not say who they were or which government department it was because one has to remain relatively discreet about all sorts of things, even after all these years. Most of the job of a private secretary is high pressure and long hours, with each of the four or five private secretaries to a secretary of state having responsibility for a defined set of subjects to progress the minister's agenda. They also, though, accompany the minister on official visits and other activities, which often involved a little bit of mothering to prevent any embarrassing mishaps. Many's the time, says our correspondent, uh, many's the time I had to do a visual sweep of a train carriage to make sure my minister hadn't left a coat, a phone or any official papers behind. For one of them, I also carried an emergency bar of chocolate in my handbag for those hangry moments when a finger of fudge or a Kit Kat could calm down tetchiness between engagements. I regret to say I also quite often found myself brushing dandruff of dandruff off the ministerial shoulders just before a media interview or opportunity for a photo. It was never spoken about, it just happened. Perhaps they thought or hoped it was an innocent piece of fluff. Needless to say, this aspect of my former role has never made it onto my CV. Happy days, says our still-to-be-anonymous, for security reasons, correspondent. But thank you. It would be fascinating to hear any more anecdotes about the kind of additional extras that people have been expected to do in jobs or have volunteered to do do, in jobs. Yeah. Because I bet there's quite a lot. I bet there are quite a lot. And that mothering thing, which I think, well, I will say that our correspondent is female, uh, that mothering thing that you might, that would probably not be asked or wouldn't be expected of a male um, person in that environment i don't think whether um so what was our correspondence official job private secretary so very very high up um in a cabinet minister's private office um you know this is this is important stuff well it is but but i i've got a sneaky feeling that along the way uh, very prominent and preeminent female politicians might have expected some quite strange things from their male private secretaries I bet Bernard Ingham was lopping the top off Maggie's eggs on the morning. Handing her a finger of fudge when she got hangry. (laughs) I tell you what, a finger of fudge. I mean, I I always thought that was one of those... um, Are you all right, Eve? That was one of those bits of confectionery that just was never big enough. No. I mean, it just, it, I'm afraid it didn't help. But don't um, you think they'd acknowledged that in the meeting before they did the ad, which went a finger of fudge is just enough to give your kids a treat? Because mm. it was acknowledging that actually it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it, was just, it was the elephant in the room. It shut them up for about two minutes. Yeah. And then they'd just want a sherbet dip or something a bit more substantial. Yeah. Mm. I had a stale Freddo the other day. 
Right, <laughs> they're just tiny, they're utterly pointless. Fredos. Well, they are, but for a while they were kind of they were always twenty p, weren't they? So I should think so. Yep, you get two bites on your Freddo, and uh, and you were happy with your lot. Uh, now this one, uh, it's a criticism. Can you take it? Is it about mental health? Yes. No, actually, that's really, a really interesting one. So yeah, on, so yeah. this is from Helen in Ilkley, who does start by saying, Jane, make no mistake, you are my all-time favourite broadcaster. That's a, that's a promising start. Yeah. None taken, Helen. <laughs> However, it drove me bananas when you said we didn't used to have mental health. I grew up in the 80s and 90s when the government started closing asylums and introduced community care, and that's why we didn't used to have mental health, because we just locked people up if they were experiencing mental health challenges. Uh, and I think it's a very good point to make, actually. Care in the community relied on there being a community that wanted to care, care for people. Yeah. And after it was uh, put in place under Virginia Bottomley, wasn't it, as health secretary, a very long time ago. Did she ago. bring in care in the community? Well, it was, it was, it was yeah. under her, her kind of yeah. um, time in office. Mm. Uh, and, you know, the, there wasn't a community out there for many people, was there? Well, I mean, I, in fairness to me, um, I was quoting somebody who'd WhatsApped us during the programme yesterday saying we didn't have mental health when we were growing up. What I meant, Helen, was that, that I was backing up our listener because we didn't have we didn't have the ability to discuss in public our own mental health or lack of it. Um, we certainly had asylums because actually that was something that I talked about to um, Caroline Quentin when she was on the week that you were off because Caroline's mum had been in one of the asylums. And Caroline... Um, I think relatively unusually, although it's not completely unheard of, spoke very positively about the impact that that um, hospital had had on her mum. In fact, she credited it with saving her mum's life. Yeah. And said it was absolutely a place of sanctuary for her mother to be. And she did get better and she came out and she lived, um, I think, a relatively quiet but, but content um, life for many years afterwards. So I think um, I totally agree that care in the community is... Well, that perhaps, well, it wasn't funded in the right way. It still exists because those asylums don't exist anymore. And increasingly, I think there are people who are saying, you know, they weren't altogether bad as long as they offered a decent amount of treatment for people. Yep. And they kept people people safe and away from, away from the rest of us because we are capable of great cruelty to people who are going through a mental health crisis. There was a woman, I don't know if you... Were you at London Bridge Tube Station today? Yes. There was. A, I don't know if you went past the poor woman that I went past who was just crying. She was slumped up against a wall. Um, no, I didn't see her. She was in a truly, truly desperate, desperate state, crying. And a young guy, uh, most of us ignored her. You couldn't completely ignore her, but a young guy went over to her, bent down, and tried to give her some money. Comple in a, he, th he completely out of the goodness of his own heart. And she just gave him an absolute volley of abuse. And he kind of backed off ner nervously and just for an instant locked eyes with me and I sort of smiled at him in a kind of, you did the right thing there, mate, and well done you for trying. And he sort of smiled a bit weakly and then we both just walked off. Um, and it's just, you think, did that, I mean, was that happening back in the 90s? Were the people clearly in such distress in incredibly public places? Yes, there were. Were there, or were they, had they already been, were they in a place of safety? I don't know. I mean, I don't know what that poor lady's issue was, but she was. It's not often you see it in such an exposed place and somebody in so, so just desperately in need of help. Mm. But I think if um, you just went and sat in A&E... In a in a hospital, well, uh, you know, over a forty-eight hour period, you would see so much mental health distress, and and so many doctors say the same thing that there isn't there isn't the onward 
conveyor belt now. So apart from anything mm. else, most A&Es will have a mental health assessment room, well, which actually, now ends up being used as the place where, you know, people who are, uh, you know, in incredibly vulnerable positions, likely to harm themselves, are just kept. It's mm. not an assessment. You know, there isn't room or, a, you know, a place on a ward or a place in a mm. um, any kind of mental health wing for them to go to but look this is two people who don't know enough about something trying to make our way through a conversation about something but also can I just say about the looking back in in time thing um sometimes when I hear those conversations and we're having it at the moment aren't we because the Resolution Foundation's study was revealing about the very poor mental health of of 20 to 24 Mm. year olds I think it just adds nothing to the conversation for us to make a comparison to our own youth because so much has changed the experience of naught to 20 now in the world uh, for young people bears no comparison to our experiences. So I think if you're a young person in distress, you hear lots of older people who, apart from anything else, are just still alive. You know, they haven't harmed themselves to the point of oblivion. You know, when you hear people going, oh, it, you know, it's all feelings, I think that must be incredibly difficult. I think uh, what I would say here is that sometimes you do find that not everybody with a mental health issue officially diagnosed or not, always understands that everybody else has also something else going on. And I think some young people do think that their parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, whoever it might be, nothing ever happened to them. But that's uh, the. sometimes, Jane, that's the prerogative of youth, full stop. Well, okay, we were yeah, like but, that, weren't we? Um, I mean, how empathetic were you about your grandparents' experiences in the war? You know, I don't... I, I'm, I'm not sure we can credit ourselves with being such marvellous creatures by comparison in our 20s. I no, think I we think, were, yeah, I mean, we were pretty rubbish and pretty selfish as well, actually. I don't know. I heard a lot about the black market butcher. Um, but I'm sure that only happened in parts of suburban Liverpool. Um, and my granddad was in a pig, pig club. Can I just see the two been. PSs from Helen and Ilkley? Yes. Uh, sourdough is the devil's work. Mm. And the PPS is I had a third degree tear with my second. During the stitch up, the midwife stopped and called in her colleague. Her colleague came in and they both had a good look. The oh. colleague said, look at that symmetry. Oh, the midwife beamed at me and said, I'm very pleased with that, even if I do say so myself. Goodness knows what it looked like before they stitched me up. A designer vagina, it's not. Uh, Thank you very much for that, Helen. I'm sure it's a designer vagina. Let's not boast about the state of anything we've got ourselves. Uh, I just want to mention this. from because it's okay go- note to self is <laughs> going back because <laughs> i mine's totally designed although it took it took i was i think i used to delight in telling people that everything was designed do you remember when people used to go on about oh it's designer yes. I, I've, I've got a new coat it's designer yeah but everything's de- even what what's so special about a designer item and people still say it as though certain things are designed and other things have just grown it's just not possible, is it? No, darling. <laughs> Everything in this room is designed. Some of it not very well. Um, 
This is from going back to what you were saying, actually. Uh, I was listening to your podcast and found the topic of mental health awareness in the 70s quite triggering. As a woman who grew up in the thousands, the noughties, is that what we call them? I think so. And is navigating having a young family in the current climate, I'm thinking that the world we're living in has just become so weird, unpredictable and ridiculous, economically speaking, but also with regards to the feeling that peacetime is drawing to a close, that it's actually really hard to keep going through the motions of the nine to five. It does all feel a bit pointless. Like, at some point, we, everything we've worked towards will be worthless as a result of economic failure or war. I feel like my generation has grown up with some of the lingering traditional views from the past decades, marriage, buying a home, etc. Some of us wanted to reach those milestones, but it's simply not the same world anymore. It's no wonder mental health is often at the forefront of conversation. We've been working towards goals that don't fit the current climate, and we don't really know what we should be doing with ourselves. In the 50s through to the 90s, as long as you worked hard, you could support a family and progress through life. But now it's all much, much more difficult. Um, that's from Maria. Thank you. And I think that, that you do make a, a series of good points there. And I think um, the housing crisis is something that I just think is really at the heart of so many people. I mean, why would you want to invest in a society uh, when you haven't got a hope in hell? of ever owning mm. a property. So it was the very good thing that Michael Gove said uh, about two weeks ago, wasn't it? Mm. That if the current government or a future government doesn't solve the housing crisis, then it has no right to ask its younger generations to believe in democracy. Well, I think that's, it sounds a bit apocalyptic, that, but it is very hard to expect people to work yeah, and, and work to be hard. part of all of this. Yeah, to, to pay tax. stake in it. Yeah, if yeah. you're going to end up at the fag end of it with absolutely bugger all for your yeah. efforts. And actually, I, I would say not just younger generations, I think it's anyone who can't yeah. uh, feel certain about where they live. I think that's a terrible thing. But I think he's just so... I think he's really put his finger on the equation, the ask, because it's just not there, is it? You know, the only permanent thing that you can look forward to is an STD. It's, you know, not much of a... <laughs> Horizon. And on your birthday as well. <laughs> He's jotting that down. Editorial. Shall we shall we move it on? Uh right. Um Oh I like that one. This one. Yeah. Dodging the camera. Yes. Oh, it's uh, it's quite sad, but yeah. I think it's very telling. It comes from Libby, uh, who says, I felt compelled to write to you after listening to the message sent in by someone in their 40s who hates having their photograph taken as they're not happy with how they look. Last year, my husband died suddenly and both my daughters were absolutely devastated because there were no up-to-date photos of them with their father that could be used at the funeral, plenty of them when they were younger. My husband didn't actively avoid having his photo taken, it just happened. However, I always have been guilty of avoiding being in any pictures and there are very few photos of me with my girls as I hate the way I look. So my message to everyone is please have your picture taken with loved ones as much as possible. You never know what's going to happen. Since my lovely husband's death, I've been in as many photos as possible with my daughters and I'm determined that they will have many photos to remember me by. I'm sad that when they were growing up, mum is missing from most events. If I could turn back time, I would have behaved differently. We live and learn. Well, there'd be huge sadness yeah. there. Um, and and thank you for taking the time to write, because I think that's not something I'd thought about at all. And 
gosh, of course. I mean, you know, with two... Some, and I'm not saying your husband was vain at all, or that you are, but but if you're a bit camera shy and you dodge out of the photo, hmm. uh, you're not thinking actually about why no. people might want to look at that photo in years to come. So I think that's a great thing to point out. Yeah, just get... I mean, it doesn't... Ultimately, what does it matter? Just have the photo taken. Yeah. It's the moment that matters. Uh, and sometimes um, we do focus too much on <laughs> taking an image. But my mum is 90 next week and we are having a family lunch on Saturday and I will be taking lots of photographs or at least as many... At least a couple of half-decent ones with the grandchildren because these moments are really precious. And frankly, it's an achievement... It's an achievement on everybody's part, yeah. um, and uh, it's it, we should be it, we should recognise it. And and also, just how much do you love looking at photographs of old relatives from bygone eras? It's always fascinating. You can't tear yourself away yeah, from looking really, into their faces. I mean, a photo album does matter, doesn't it? I've yeah. got I've got one relative which I just put really. Bought, I mean, I and I but I print them from my phone and because I'm so conscious that an album of photos <coughs> is so much more pleasurable. Than, um, than just looking on your phone. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to look at my bloody phone to look at photos. Um, and the children, even children well into their late teens love looking at baby photographs and, you know, that day you went to Digger Valley or whatever it was. You know, they, they love all that kind of thing. Mm. Terrible at the time. But reminiscing 15 years on from a place of safety, it's hilarious. Come in Kodak, I'm willing for your sponsorship. Yeah. I don't Pe- think they exist anymore. Peppa Pig's causing issues, isn't she, in the States? People is she? Compla- yes, people are complaining that... Um, Americans are complaining that Pepper is teaching people how to speak <coughs> properly. She's oh, teaching yes. American children how to speak properly. And yeah, and also she's just being a bit belligerent. and well, She is belligerent. It, yeah, a, ba- a bad example. Yeah, she's quite a grumpy pig. Yeah. But, you know, she gets her feelings known and that's no bad thing. Okay. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com slash covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. Warbyparker.com slash covered. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Shall we move on to Kathy Newman? Yes, come in, Kathy. Yeah. 
so Cathy is our colleague here at Times Radio and she has got a new book out called The Ladder in which she talks about other women's journey to success in various shapes and forms and sometimes actually success is just dealing with the vicissitudes of life uh, that have been thrown people's way and it's always a good listen and in this book she does this very clever thing Jane doesn't she where she doesn't just uh, detail another woman's life uh, she's actually put uh, experiences of life into very thoughtful categories like dealing with imposter syndrome becoming and belonging I didn't realise that was a quote from a famous philosopher the things we learn along the way and in fact that's where our interview started with Cathy and her own thoughts of becoming Cathy Newman Oh, God, that's such a big question. And those are the kind of questions that I ask people. And now the boot's on the other foot. Um, I think, like many of the women in the book, actually, it is not... I kind of... I called the slot the ladder for Times Radio on Friday Drive um, and the book also because... And it's sort of tongue-in-cheek because it's not a straight, you know, one foot after another up the rungs. It's not like that for anybody. It wasn't like that for me. It's not like that for the women in the book. So I wanted to be a violinist and I basically wasn't a good enough violinist. So um, then I decided I, I, we didn't have a telly when I was growing up. So I kind of didn't know what I wanted to be until I was about 16 and we got a telly and I saw Kate A.D. I think it was the first Iraq war. She had a flak jacket on and I just thought that is an incredible job it's really interesting it's really important um you know that's what I'm going to do and I have actually never I haven't got up the ladder to become a war reporter so you know that's still to come have you met Kate Hady yes in fact for my last book bloody brilliant women she I sort of made a passing reference to her in that so I went to a book festival and she interviewed me for that although actually I've got to say it was sort of yeah me interviewing her I didn't really get much of a word in so yeah <laughs> If You're the, chuckling, you know. <laughs> if we cast our minds back, actually, it's almost terrifying how few women were on television. Yeah. And, and it was it was really, you know, I think if we tried to explain it to our daughters now, they'd think we were exaggerating a little yeah, bit. Yeah, but it was, honestly, it was, well, most sort of public-facing jobs were kind of jobs for the men, weren't they, really? And so as a young girl growing up, I mean... My mum used to say to me, oh, you know, why don't you become a PA? And, you know, I kind of thought, well, I could do that. And then I looked around and thought, oh, maybe I'll be a lawyer because that's, you know, what people say they want to do, isn't it, when they don't really know what else they want to do. And, yeah, everywhere you look, it was sort of men doing the interesting jobs, wasn't it? And on telly, as you say, it was mostly women were sort of typecast, weren't they, and doing... You know, they weren't doing the sort of tough, gritty jobs, which is why I thought, oh, I want to be a war reporter. I just never managed to make that happen because mm. I got sidetracked and got interested in politics instead. So, you know, and maybe you were will. you were in quite a male-dominated world, education-wise, weren't mm. you? So you were a girl yeah. at a boys. Well, I was initially. I went to the local state school first of all, and that was mixed. But then I went to a girls' school, girls' private school, and I I hated that because I think. There was that real mean girls thing. And, you know, I think it is different these days. I think girls are kinder to each other and they're sort of more supportive of each other. I think maybe that's a rose-tinted spectacles. But there, it was quite mean girls in those days, so I didn't really like that. And then I got a scholarship to a big public school, Charterhouse. And, yeah, I found that very difficult because there was so... My dad was a teacher there for start, so I was kind of... My card was marked. I was really... You know, I was a scholarship kid. And I was quite studious. I liked playing music. So I was instantly not going to be part of the cool gang. And, yeah, it's very male-dominated. And, 
you know, when you went into assembly in the morning in chapel, you could hear the boys sort of grading you out of 10 as you walked past. And so you're, yeah, it's, it's a good training for life. Yeah, it's a sad training for life, isn't yeah. it, though, really? Yeah, but I suppose all those, you know, a lot of the things, a lot of the people you deal with in Westminster over the years or in business, there's still those attitudes remain, and I talk about some of those in the book. Um, for example, you know, when I went in to interview a, a big media boss when I was on the FT, he, he couldn't believe I was from the FT because... Um, I was a woman and I assume he just said, oh, no, no, there's got to be a mistake. I, I was being interviewed by the FT and I was like, well, I am the FT, sorry. <laughs> I um, am the <laughs> You got me. So <clears throat> I think it is, it's a, you're right, it's a sad training, but it's a useful training. And I think attitudes are changing. And a lot of the reporting I've done in my job has been about, you know, the fallout from Me Too in, in Westminster or in business. Um, and I think attitudes that we would have shrugged off when we were you know first starting our journey up the ladder they wouldn't be accepted mm. today and you you'd complain about them but then there's this terrible acid rain of misogyny as well isn't there oh, so the more empowered women you, you feel free to have it you've brought me cookies <laughs> uh, we gift you that um, but but it but it comes at you all the time doesn't mm. it so you know you're a very uh, you're a, a very visible high profile example of female success and I think of confidence. So when I see you on television, I go, hooray, mm. there is still a certain type of man who sees exactly the same person yeah. on television and thinks, I'm going to get her. Yeah, and you see that online all the time. And I've had a lot of trolling and death threats and, you know, stalkers and all that sort of, all the things that go with the territory. But I think what I find liberating about, I'm 50 this year, and I find, and a lot of the women in the book said exactly the same, that the older they got, the more confident they got and the less they worried about the noises off. And I do find that. I, the first time it happened and I got this wave of death threats online and it was horrible. You know, I was doxxed. My address was put out online, my home address. Um, and, you know, I was worried for my kids and family. But then it, you get through it and what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And actually now I care so much less about those faceless people online. And... You know, you say I project an image of confidence. I feel confident. And that's, I, I think that does come with age and wisdom and experience and just, I'm not going to put up with this rubbish anymore. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you do, because I think uh, when you talk about imposter syndrome in the book, mm. it's such a massive thing uh, yeah. that women suffer from. And it's not to say that men don't suffer from it as well. Um, but I wonder whether it's quite such a universal no, condition. I mean... Well, I think it was Aisha Hazarika, our colleague here, who interviewed Tony Blair and asked him about imposter syndrome, and he hadn't even heard of the phrase. He really hadn't <laughs> heard of it. Well, you mentioned, actually, just going back briefly to the trolling, and I don't want to dwell on it, but you tried to explain it to Jon Snow, and he mm. didn't really know what you were getting at, did yeah, he? Yeah, and I think... Yeah, it was it was interesting, because, you know, he wasn't being unsupportive. No, he just no. literally had no experience of it. Um, and I think that was, in the early days, I think it's changed now a bit, because I think it's just become such a sort of pit of vitriol twitter that i think everybody gets you know, anyone who's even outspoken older even white, white men. men yeah really yeah but yeah. not as much but i mean much. Okay. you know whatever you think of her politics i think there was an analysis done soon after twitter sort of became mainstream of uh, abuse and trolling and it was found that diane abbott yeah. got a, a disproportionate um amount of all the trolling because she was a woman and because she was black so yeah, it's it's something that definitely isn't shared equally. But 
I feel I spend less time on Twitter now. I think that's probably partly self-preservation. I don't really look at the notifications so much. I do a bit more blocking, but I don't really want to spend all my time blocking stuff because it's just an extra sort of tax on being a woman, isn't it? It's like, mm. why should I spend that time? Yeah. So I just go on it less. Yeah, but I mean, it's a very p polluted pool. And if that was mm. a thing in real life, you'd just get out of it, wouldn't yeah. you? You just yeah. wouldn't, wouldn't stay well, in the water. Well, although there's that thing of you don't refuse to walk down the street because you might get attacked, do you? I want to be able to walk down the street on Twitter and not be attacked. Yes, I'd, I'd like that too, and I'm sure Jane would. But while there are just so many idiots throwing stuff around, yeah. you know, it just takes a lot of energy to keep yeah. ducking all the time. You do it? it a bit less, I think, yeah. yeah. Um, we do want to talk about your husband's amazing cooking. We'd like some recipes. <laughs> he's a bit embarrassed, actually. Yeah, is he? Bit, yeah, he's, <laughs> this is the headline like, on Times he, 2. I don't yeah. ever cook a meal at home and I paid my husband to transcribe my book. <laughs> Confessions of the news presenter, <laughs> Kathy Newman. Well, my husband said when he saw that, he said, husband cooks a meal shock. And yeah. I just thought it wasn't actually really big news anymore but I suppose I don't know I think a lot of women who are the ones going out to work and their partners are staying at home I think probably a lot of them don't do the cooking but I suppose maybe they swap at the weekend well the fact is it's not really a feminist thing I'm just not very good at cooking and I don't really enjoy it and my husband is good at cooking and he enjoys it so it's like why would you not split the roles that way it's not really me making a feminist statement that I won't be chained to the cooker but, you know, we wouldn't eat otherwise. I mean, you know. Yeah. It's fun, isn't it? Because you might not remember this, but you came on our, our previous incarnation of our yes, podcast. Yes, I do remember. It was lovely. For, for your other book about uh, bloody, bloody brilliant women. Yes, yeah. And Difficult you, or brilliant. Uh, no, sorry, I'm so sorry. You, you, of course, would know the title of your own book. <laughs> I can't remember the subtitle, though. <laughs> but you told us about your... Uh, your husband doing all the cooking and the fact that you didn't cook. I mean, that would have been, what, four or five years yeah. ago. And and I hate to say this, but Jane and I didn't really bat an eyelid at that. <laughs> I think we just slightly laughed at the fact that, you you know, you didn't have a signature well, recipe that you could have Never been able to spot a story, have we? <laughs> <laughs> we had no idea how outrageous it was, Cathy. Well, but nobody picked up on it then. It yeah, was... well, I think Christina Lamb, who um, is an amazing foreign correspondent, actually tweeted the um, interview yesterday and said, it will be news when it's no longer news that, yeah. you know, we'll have finally reached equality when it doesn't actually matter who does the cooking. Yeah. So. Uh, we should talk about some of the amazing women uh, who you mention in The Ladder. So this, you know, what we all do for a living uh, is incredible, isn't it? Because somebody comes into the studio and you can ask them, you know, whatever you like. And there's something about conversation, I think, when it's live, yeah. where people tell you things which they might not tell you if you were just writing it down or you, actually you had the pressure of the cameras in a mm. TV studio. So I wonder who's really stayed with you from yeah. this studio, who's told you something where, you know, the tingles have, yeah, have come across Yeah, the hairs on the back of your neck have stood up. Well, I mean, honestly, this sounds like puff and it's not, but virtually every week I come away from the discussion going, oh my gosh, that's amazing, what a story. Because most of the women who sort of qualify because they've done something amazing in their lives or they've reached a certain point of success, they've done that in the face of adversity or, you know, terrible sort of trauma. And, you know, I could... So I could literally name most of the interviews that, I, that I've done, but just to single out a few, I mean, we've mentioned already Rosamund Adu, Kissy Deborah, just to have that grief of your child dying and, you know, I'm not saying she turned it, but she, she, out of that, grew this amazing campaign to tackle air pollution. That was inspirational. And, you know, I've, 
I can feel when I'm interviewing someone like that about terrible personal trauma, I feel moved to tears. But the amazing thing about Rosamond is she has that positive energy as well. So you're sort of crying one minute and laughing the next. Mm. So that stands out. Jocelyn Belbonnell, who was my very first ladder interviewee, I was actually really nervous because it was a big deal. It was this new slot. It was half an hour. It had to go really well. And she's this incredible astrophysicist who should be a household name, but, but isn't. She discovered pulsars, which are stars that have reached the end of their lives. And without her discovery we wouldn't have discovered black holes. So it's a pretty big deal um, in astrophysics. And she told me how she did it, and actually it was imposter syndrome in a way that, that led her to that discovery because she was so worried that she wasn't good enough to be at Cambridge University, that she worked twice as hard as everybody else, and she poured over the data that much more diligently. And so that was how she discovered this anomaly in the data which led her to discover pulsars. So, um, you know... Someone like that, you just think, what an incredible story of turning a sort of, in a way, a lack of confidence that many women share into a great strength. So I learn a lot from the women. Um, Tawakol Karman, a Yemeni activist, um, Marina Litvinenko, both of them said to me, you know, you kind of think, how do you... Tawakol Karman constantly put in jail for her protests. How do you stay positive in the face of that? Marina Litvinenko, her husband, was poisoned by Vladimir Putin's regime. So how do you retain hope? Both of them said the same thing, that they, they, they have to retain hope. And the inspiration of, you know, I'm quite a moaner. You know, if I have a bad day or, you know, the hair is wrecked by it raining outside or something, or I have a difficult journey to work, I tend to sort of let off steam about that. But when you're talking to these women who have faced incredible threats to their personal safety or they've lost someone incredibly dear to them, you feel totally humbled by that conversation. And so, yeah, I feel really privileged to, to have this opportunity to talk to these women um, and now to put some of them in the book. If you were a young woman now starting out, would you choose journalism? Yeah, it's interesting because um, both of my daughters, I can see that they're slightly drawn to journalism, but they've, at the moment anyway, they've both kind of said, no, I don't think so. And in a way, I don't blame them because I think it's a much tougher world than it was in some ways and in some ways not than when I started out. I think I spent about a decade on newspapers and actually that was an incredible place to get to learn what a journalist was and how to be a journalist. And I think that training ground doesn't exist in the same way as it did. And I think that's really worrying. I think um, journalists on the way up are incredibly badly paid and it's hard to make ends meet if you're living in London, for example. Well, if you haven't got a connection in London, somewhere you can it's, sleep. Exactly. It's hopeless, it's Impossible. It? And I, you know, I mentor a lot of people and I, I do actually say to them, we'll try Channel 4 in Leeds or try BBC in Salford because mm. I think it's easier to... Cheaper, certainly. Yeah, cheaper and, you know, just easier to get a foothold. So I'm not... You know, I, I worry about the future of particularly investigative journalism as well because how many outlets actually do proper investigative journalism now? You know, the, the, the cutting back of Newsnight, I think, mm. is actually a real concern if the BBC is sort of pulling back from that kind of hard-hitting news coverage. So I think we're at a bit of a crossroads and we've got social media pumping out misinformation and public service broadcasters like the BBC, Channel 4 you know, are incredibly important. And I should add the journalism that the Times does. Oh, well done. <laughs> well, I was waiting for that. Sorry. But, I mean, no, it's true, though. I mean, foreign <laughs> correspondents, we talked about Christina yeah. Lamb, you know, 
the work that people like that do, and there is a lot of investigative reporting on the Times, that's all really important, but it feels to me that it's sort of slightly swamped or at risk of being swamped in this morass of, rubbish. Kind of misinformation yeah. and vitriol that isn't really being regulated. Are you looking forward to the election? I am, because I love an election. I love the stories that come out of it. Um, I think it's going to be a very bitter election. I mean, we've seen a foretaste of it this mm. week, haven't we, with yeah. the row over Islamophobia. So I would not want to be a politician in that election, particularly not a female politician. When you look at all the, you know, I know people thought, some people thought that the what the speaker said was a sort of ruse to get Labour out of jail, but actually the safety threats to female MPs are and MPs of all descriptions, but particularly women, are, are really real. And I think, yeah, I wouldn't... I used to think about going into politics. I wouldn't want to go into politics now, and that's a bit of a worry for democracy. Not me not going into politics, but... No, that's just... a worry, Catherine. <laughs> Which party, just out of interest? I can possibly tell you. Mm. Well, we'll hazard a guess during the bulletin, <laughs> if that's all right. And who is the interview that's got away? Who's on your list that you've never oh, managed to Vladimir get? Vladimir Putin. Ooh. Yeah, really would what love to. What would your to. opening question be? Are you a killer? Well, the answer is yes, though, isn't it? So, I mean, yeah. why are you a killer? Uh, <laughs> How many people have you killed? Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I, I would have liked to have interviewed the Queen. Never got to do that. Got to meet her, didn't get to interview her. Um, but, yeah, Trump as well. My colleague Matt Fry interviewed him a few years ago. But, yeah, I'd love to have done the interview that Piers Morgan did, except do it differently. Um, Just say better. <laughs> well, we're in the same building. Well, no, we're not now anymore. <laughs> I, I, I can't remember. <laughs> oh, maybe we're not. Okay. Jane doesn't always know where she is. <laughs> no, not do I. We could be anywhere, actually. Yeah, it's very pleasant, anyway, wherever it is. <laughs> and now we've got cookies, Jane. Kathy <laughs> Newman there, and her book, The Ladder, is out now. So if you'd never had to cook a meal in your life, Jane, mm, what yeah. else would that have made time for you to do? Well, write all those books. Absolutely. I mean, honestly, I mean, the truth is, um, when I was married 150 years ago, actually, to be fair to him, the man could he cook. He did cook. Yeah, and I... But I slightly... So what did you do with your time? <laughs> I don't know. I think I was just de-knitting the kiddies. Actually, I probably was. Just making yourself look nice <laughs> for dinner. Yes, yes probably. That would be it. I was having treatments. Um, why am I doing that voice? Oh, you've encouraged me to do that. Um... <laughs> Uh, what was I doing? Good, good question. Uh, you see, I got alone. No, I, the kids were quite young, so I probably was doing some parenting, as it's known. But was it ever a, um, a, a bone of contention? Because well, it's see, often think... a massive bone of contention when it's the other way round. Oh yeah, I mean, I um, no, it wasn't that I didn't do any cooking, but he was—he was a good cook and he wanted to cook. And also, of course, when you're cooking, you don't need to take somebody to the park or to active what's-its, do you? Because you, you're doing the roast at home. So, look, swings and roundabouts. Um, and I genuinely enjoy knocking up a meal now, actually. I take great pleasure in doing it because... But then I've got time on my hands and there's always a podcast to listen to, isn't there? So it's glorious. But I think I really... I mean, Cathy's just being completely honest. You know, she... And good luck to her. And No, um, definitely, definitely. And she's bringing home the bacon in the old traditional way. So surely she can't be expected to then come home. It must be quite late by the time she gets back. Start doing a dinner. I mean, it'd be 10 o'clock before the 8. And, and all of that doesn't suit every woman. And no, absolutely crazy doesn't suit every man. That either. it's actually a, a kind of thing of note yeah and of course a, if it was a, if it were cook. a man who says oh i don't cook um we well, wouldn't we wouldn't be talking about it well he wouldn't offer the information would he <laughs> he wouldn't say oh i don't cook 
No, it wouldn't be a point it of conversation. The only time that we discuss this is when a man boasts of never changing a nappy. Like Jacob Rees-Mogg. Those sort of funny men who occasionally say, just to weirdly, just to emphasise how butch they are, they'll, they'll say they've never changed a nappy. And I always think, well, let's hope somebody's willing to change yours, buddy, when mm. the time comes round. That's what I think. Yeah. Anyway, a bit of feminism there. OK. Happy birthday again. Thank you very much. Uh, I'd really miss cooking if I couldn't cook every what day. What was I going That's... to ask you a question? Do you miss, would you miss Thank cooking? You. <laughs> I find it the, the most fantastic yeah, it's uh, nice. debriefing yeah. of the day in my head. And I would really miss it. And and if I can be very honest, sometimes uh, I I know that I've been that slightly kind of um, I I would like this kitchen under my control person. Yeah. And I've got a budding chef in the house at the moment, as a really superb cook. Um, my son he he cooks brilliantly, and I have to go and lock myself up in pissing Barbara's room, so I don't do that <laughs> terrible kind of fusspot thing of. Are you sure you want to do oh, using a pastry brush? Uh, you know, because because <laughs> uh, I do, I feel it's my kind of uh, place of safety actually in the house, the kitchen. Yeah. So, note to self. Yeah. Well, also, can I just say, it's not so much the cooking, it's, the, it's coming up with what to cook, isn't it? That's the problem. Yes. Especially if, if you, you know, you're working, you've got other things. Just the ideas are a massive pain in the backside. But once you've decided what you're cooking, it's fine. Yeah. Chop, chop, chop. Here we go. Toast, beans bit of butter or flora and you're good to go lovely yeah. uh, right we're off to uh, gouge out the very very beefy chocolatey eyes on a Colin the Caterpillar <laughs> always the nicest bits aren't they I'm having the end <laughs> and we'll be back with you tomorrow sorry right. <laughs> have a lovely day Well done for getting to the end of another episode of Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. Our Times radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Henry Tribe. And don't forget, there is even more of us every afternoon on Times Radio. It's Monday to Thursday, 3 till 5. You can pop us on when you're pottering around the house or heading out in the car on the school run. Or running a bank. Thank you for joining us and we hope you can join us again on Off Air very soon. Don't be so silly. Running a bank? I know, ladies. A lady listener. I'm just sorry. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. warbyparker.com covered.